0: On October 11th, 1973, an extremely strange alien encounter happens in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Six days later, only 340 miles away in Falkville, Alabama, there is another encounter. This time, there is photographic proof. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Pascagoula alien abductions and the Falkville Metal Man.
1: In freezing basement once again in the bowels of Georgia.
0: How, you can't do that to me, man. You're sitting there talking about some of the most screwed up stuff, and then you're just like, okay, here we go. Like, no, you can't do That's it. how it
1: goes, bro. Welcome. Well, uh, have to back up and punt. I messed up last week. Oh, my God. And a patron from Down Under. You, I also, ref-
0: you also got another woman's name wrong.
1: Uh yeah, I called like our yeah, she, long time she made sure that I by got, God, I was like, yeah. trust us, we're looking for a replacement for our look. We can't do shit. Right. <laughs> but it is Miss Cody Ryan from down under, and I do apologize. She was a good sport about it. Even said I didn't have to apologize, but you know me being the gentleman the I am. Southern
0: gentleman you are. I
1: would not let that go. Uh we got some new patrons this week. We had some updated patrons. Miss Kim Phillip updated hers from the three dollar to the ten dollar. We are working on. I know we say this often, but we I'm actually taking it away from Coach because he's dropped the ball. I'm actually gonna get some uh, beer glasses and y'all are gonna get some. I dropped the ball on that. Yep, you did. Uh, you have access to the Patreon money, <laughs> dude. I don't. What, you could have designed it and found the website and just even said, though, "Hey, pay for it." Even though we have pat- okay, hey, no, no, no. Even Is though we have pa-
0: Patreons. And they pay money. I paid out of pocket for their gifts, and you were like, oh, pay you back out of that money.
1: It's March, bro. (laughs) I'll I'll cash happy. Don't worry about it. (laughs) We had a new patron, Miss Natalie Walker. We also had Jose Alvarez. Now,
0: I know this person, Jose Alvarez, and I competed against each other when we were white belts, and I was fortunate enough to win. Then we had a super fight in front of my mama.
1: And he beat that He tail.
0: beat the bricks off of me when we were purple belts. <laughs> in front of my mama. <laughs> <laughs> but he's uh he's he listens, he comments on he sends me messages about almost every uh episode. He knows my true identity because he's beat my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully though, he's a brown belt now and I'm still just a purple belt, so Oh, you know what? Everybody loves on podcasts is that awkward silence when you, you know, what are you, what are you doing over there?
1: Checking the rankings. We're still killing it
0: in Slovakia. Hell yeah. Come on. let's. If you're in Slovakia, tell a friend. Let's see if we can get us in the top 10. That'd be awesome. If we get in the top 10 Slovakia, of Slovakia. any country.
1: I don't care if it's we, Papua New Guinea.
0: Well, you know what we got to do now? Let's look up Unsolved Mysteries of Slovakia. Why are you just doing it now? We're in the middle of
1: recording. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into this one because it's a doozy. But first, let's get to the more important thing. Since it is a Sunday, and we are partaking. We are, hold on, wait for it. We are drinking the one and only Truck Stop Honey Brown Ale from Back 40 Beer Company and The great state of Alabama. Since the original case that we were going to do is from Alabama, we chose this brewery. But but you will soon find out we're not—we're just not staying in one state. We have to
0: because we—I never heard of either one of these, which is crazy. Because this is all I do with my free time is look into weird shit. But these are two insane alien uh, encounters. That happened six days apart, in only 340 miles apart, uh, distance-wise. Really? Which I don't know. Let me let me look up the. Um, so yeah, they're 340 miles apart, and for those in Slovakia, that is 547 kilometers. Just to give you an idea of the distance, it's not that far. It's, uh, it's a it's few hours drive away. Definitely capable for an alien spacecraft to travel in six days. Yeah,
1: even if they stopped and changed tires. (laughs) All right, so we're getting into (laughs) the first case. and We originally set this up Mm -hmm. with our second case in mind, but feel like you really need this backstory so that we can get a full grasp of what the heck was going on back in 1973. So on the evening of Thursday, October the 11th, 1973, 42-year-old Charles Hickson and 19-year-old Calvin Parker, who both worked at the Walker Shipyard and lived in Gautier, Mississippi, were fishing for hardheads. And if you're not from the state of Mississippi, that is catfish for everybody else in the... Oh, I didn't know that. You learn something new every day. Mm. They were fishing near a grain elevator on the shores of the Pascagoula River. They were not having any luck... So, Charles suggested. I can't, I can't hear the word Pascagoula and not think of the Ray Stevens song. I know.
0: The Dale the Squirrel went berserk in the first of righteous Church. That sleepy little town no,
1: of Pascagoula.
0: Pascagoula. Pascagoula.
1: We're going to get sued. <laughs> yeah, that's OK. <laughs> but anyway, so they decide to move their fishing adventure down to some rusty iron piers at the old abandoned Shopter shipyard where. Charles had caught some redfish and speckled trout earlier in the week. So they pick out an old pier and they decide that they are going to fish the night away. So they were expecting to have some good fishing and lots of good conversations and just hanging out. But, as fate would have it, around 9 p.m., the men spotted a bluish oblong orb pulsating in the sky at what Charles guessed must have been two to three miles away at first they were just kind of like hey that's pretty cool but when it started glowing and moving towards them and it stopped just a few feet above the bayou a mere hundred feet away from them their curiosity turned to pucker factor <laughs> <laughs> of ten
0: watertight
1: yep. ain't getting b th- bb in there The two heard a soft buzzing noise coming from the object, and Charles described to the Jackson County Sheriff, Fred Diamond, what had happened. And I quote, It was about eight feet tall. It was not round. It was oblong, sort of oblong. And the opening it had was at one end of it. The only lights I seen on the outside was that blue light. You're surprised when you look in the sky and you see a blue light. It really calls your attention to it. Then in just a little while, it comes right down above the bayou. You know, about two, three feet above the ground. It might have been 35, 40 yards. You see something like that, it scares you to death. Yeah. I'm and sad. I couldn't believe it. You, you, you know, no kidding. There was a little buzzing sound, kind of like a, just like that. That's all. What was it? <laughs> was it any backblast or anything? Didn't hit the ground, it hovered. And you think you're dreaming about something. That you know of. So when it seemed like things couldn't get any weirder, they ratcheted up. And the hatch opens at one of the ends of the oval craft, and three strange beings begin to glide just above the water straight towards Charles and Calvin.
0: My favorite part of this is the fact that you think you're doing a different accent. Like, you you think you're doing an impression (laughs) of this
1: guy. I'm not. I'm just talking. (laughs) <laughs> Charles described the first encounter with what he believed were robotic creatures from another world, and I quote...
0: See, that 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 comment right there is why we had to include this. We yes. had to talk about both of them, because... Foreshadowing. That, that is the exact description of the metal man.
1: So Charles states, and I quote, I jumped to my feet, looked over at Calvin, and he looked plumb strange. Then a door opened, and this brilliant light came out of it. I couldn't figure... What in the world was happening? And all of a sudden, right in the end of it, this opening was laid up there, and three of them just floated out of the thing. They wasn't on no ground. They were about five feet tall, had bullet-shaped heads without necks, slits for mouths, and where their noses or ears would be, they had thin, conical objects sticking out like carrots from a snowman's head. They had no eyes. They had gray, wrinkled skin, round feet, and claw-like hands. They didn't have toes, but they had feet shape. It was more or less like a round thing on a leg, if you'd call it a leg.
0: Now, here is one thing that I will say. That is a spectacularly vivid description.
1: For you to come up with, in the heat of the moment, it looked like a carrot on a snowman. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, that's, that's almost too good. You get what I'm saying? Like, that's, I don't know. Charles... I'll be scared shitless. Yeah. These aliens, what do they look like? Ba
1: aliens. Man. aliens. They wasn't touching the fucking ground. <laughs> and the thing
0: happened. I'm not gonna be like, oh, and they had uh forty four hairs on each hand and there were no toes and
1: well, we'll get into why Charles is a little bit more uh descriptive later in the story. But Charles admitted to being scared by the three long armed elephant skin robots that were floating toward them. I believe that. I believe that's the biggest no-shit statement ever. (laughs) He stated that Calvin was, quote, downright petrified. And he said, quote, I was scared to death, and me with a spinning reel out there, it's all I had. I couldn't. Well, I was so scared. Well, you can't imagine. Calvin Dunn went hysterical on me. The three aliens hovered around the fisherman, their upper limbs moving in a jerky, almost mechanical way. That was when one of the creatures attempted to communicate with Charles, utilizing... What he says was a series of unintelligible buzzing noises, which Charles took as an attempt to put him at ease, <laughs> but it didn't work.
0: Oh, no, it definitely would not have worked.
1: No. The, t- the, t- the two other beings remained deadly silent as they floated behind Charles and effortlessly lifted him off the pier with their robotic lobster like pinchers. The third creature grabbed a hold of Calvin, who passed out cold. And again, Charles describes the event as follows, quote, "'They just glided up there to me. "'Then one of them made a little buzzing noise, "'and two of them never made n- no noise. "'It might have been contacting the others. "'See, I don't know. "'By then I was so damn scared I didn't know anything. "'And two of them just floated around behind me "'and lifted me off the ground by my arms "'with them damn pinchers. Mm. "'They must have done something. "'I just raised off the ground.' They didn't use no force. They didn't hurt me. Well, they did hurt me, but I didn't feel nothing. Charles stated that his levitating into the ship, while extremely scary, was not unpleasant despite his arms continuing to be bloody into the next day where he had been grabbed by one of the creature's pinchers. Calvin, on the other hand, had a much more darker perspective of what he endured and he states quote my damn arms my arms i remember they just froze up and i couldn't move just like i stepped on a damn rattlesnake i passed out i expect i never passed out in my whole life the three beings defied gravity as they took the two men back into their ship and this is calvin again and he said no i'm sorry this is charles again quote one took hold of calvin and i saw him go limp he told me later that he fainted They took us through the doorway in the middle of a room, and I couldn't see Calvin anymore. There was nothing in there, just a real bright glow. I couldn't move anything but my eyes, and they glided me into that thing. You know how you just guide somebody? All of us moved like we were floating through air. They let go of me. I still wasn't touching nothing, just kind of floating. All I could think was, what are they going to do with us? I figured they'd take us off, and we'd never see our families again. So at this point, things went from scary to weird and scary. So Charles states that his pleas to be released fell on deaf ears while he claimed he was levitating a few feet off the floor inside a chairless, brightly lit spacecraft. While hovering in midair, he states that a big, football-shaped mechanical eye approximately seven inches in diameter scanned his body.
0: He even knows the diameter. Come on, man. I'm getting skeptical here.
1: Now, Charles recounted his time inside the ship. Quote, some kind of instrument, I don't know what it was. I didn't see anything that I could call an instrument that I've ever seen before. It was like no x-ray machine. There ain't no way to describe it. It looked like an eye, like a big eye. It had some kind of an attachment to it. It moved right in front of my face. I saw dials and gadgets moving around. It went behind me, then came back over me. It went all over my body up and down. Then it disappeared back into the wall. I was just about out of my mind. I thought they were going to kill me. Folks would think we fell off in the river and drowned, and nobody would ever know about this. Now, Charles speculated that during the time that he was left alone, the beings were examining Calvin. Either fortunately or unfortunately, however you would look at it, Calvin does not remember what had happened to him while he was in the ship. Though, years later, he would begin to recall some fuzzy details during post-hypnotic regression sessions. Both men felt that this all took place in the span of roughly 20 minutes before the mechanical host carried them back to the riverbank. As Charles snapped out of shock, he noticed that Calvin was cowering on the ground, weeping and praying. Just seconds later, the two watched in disbelief as the blue self-illuminated object rose straight up and shot into the atmosphere. And this is Charles again. Quote, I saw Calvin standing there staring out at the water. He was in shock. I've seen men in shock, and if you don't do something pretty quick, they'll die. I started going over to where he was, and I saw the craft leave. The blue lights were on again. I remember that. When I got to Calvin, I had to slap him a time or two. I finally got him to where he could say something. He said, Charlie, what in the world was that? I said, son, I don't know, but they didn't kill us. Charles realized that he and Calvin's story would be simply too bizarre for the average person to believe. So for the next 45 minutes, they sat in Charles's parked car trying to calm themselves and make some sort of sense out of what they had just been through. Charles again, quote, The only thing I remember is that kid Calvin just standing there. I've never seen that sort of fear on a man's face as I saw on Calvin's. It took me a while to get him back to his senses, and the first thing I told him was, Son, ain't nobody going to believe this. Let's just keep this whole thing to ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's got a point. A huge risk coming coming yeah. out
1: with something like this. Now the pair would be dreading the embarrassment that would inevitably come towards their revelation in the public's eye. They both realized that the potential threat far outweighed their fear of ridicule. So, <laughs> this is where good southern gentlemen that they are, they decide to calm their nerves with a couple of shots of whiskey. And it was decided well, that upon sense that. To me. Yeah, I'd have been blowing bubbles in the bottle. <laughs> it was decided that they were going to have to notify somebody. And Charles states, quote, I knew people would call us crazy and everything else, but I thought about it some more and said, what if it's a threat to our country? That's when I decided to call Keesler. And Keesler is an Air Force base in Biloxi. So Charles calls the Air Force base. The sergeant who took the call informed him that the Air Force no longer investigated UFOs and instructed them... No longer? That's
0: pretty, like, that's an ominous yeah. thing.
1: The sergeant instructed them to call, call their local sheriff. So Charles and Calvin were real reluctant to go face-to-face with the sheriff, especially knowing how quickly rumors would spread in small towns, not to mention the fact... That they understood their extraterrestrial saga was simply too incredible to be believed by any upstanding Mississippi lawman. Still trying to steer clear of a direct confrontation with authorities, Charles decided to bring their tale directly to the newspaper. But, as luck would have it, or shitty luck would have it, however you want to look at it, the office of the small town newspaper was closed. The men now knew they had nothing left to do but go to the sheriff. So roughly two hours after the ordeal was over, still uncertain how their story would be received, Charles and Calvin reluctantly made the long drive to Jackson County, Mississippi Sheriff's Office. So the two men, still scared and exhausted, arrived at the Sheriff's Office, and Sheriff Fred Diamond and Captain Glenn Ryder conducted an interview with the men. Now, later, Sheriff Diamond would recall that he harbored serious doubts regarding this story. Specifically, Calvin seemed genuinely frightened and disturbed by what had transpired. Charles explained right away that while he had been sober during the incident, he had some whiskey immediately following the ordeal.
0: Not a soul on earth could blame him.
1: Now, this did not do anything to bolster Sheriff Diamond's
0: confidence yeah yeah
1: but unbeknownst to Charles and Calvin Sheriff Diamond and Captain Ryder secretly taped Charles and Calvin discussing the abduction while they were alone in an interrogation room following the initial interview where the sheriff and the captain was in the room so Sheriff Diamond was just betting the farm
0: Yeah, as soon as he walks out of the room, he's like, man, just stick to the story. They're going to... Yeah. No, remember, like, yeah, they're figuring they're going to talk to each other about how to keep their story straight and how to trick them.
1: Right. And he states that he was certain the secret tape would reveal the dynamic duos to be hoaxers. He also believed that they had them dead to the rights, but was, in his words, flabbergasted to discover that in private they seemed even more disturbed than they were while they talked to them officially. But Sheriff Diamond and Charles, the captain, agreed to keep the secret tape quiet.
0: Then how are we reading about it?
1: Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Despite being sleep-deprived and suffering from PTSD, Charles and Calvin returned to work the next morning, both keeping quiet about what had transpired the night before. Co-workers would go on record stating that they noted that the men s- seemed extremely on edge. Just hours after clocking in, Sheriff Diamond telephoned the two men at work and broke the news to them that reporters were swarming his office trying to uncover more information regarding their abduction. Charles was pissed that the sheriff would so quickly break his word to keep the story a secret. But Sheriff Diamond, apologetic, insisted that that he did not betray their confidence, and that the case was simply too sensational to keep under wraps. Despite Charles and Calvin trying to keep away from the publicity, it wasn't long before the wire service got a hold of the story, and in a matter of days, the Pascagoula alien abduction was news across the globe. Now, as if it wasn't bad enough, the two men began to grow paranoid that they had been exposed to some sort of radiation.
0: Now, here's a question I have. How could these two stories not have been featured on Unsolved Mysteries? I don't know. Because this is sensational sensational, and definitely up their alley and in the time period. You know, it happened before the show came out. Yeah. How did
1: neither one of these end up? Well, Charles and Calvin go to the local hospital, but they realize that once they get there— The hospital's not equipped to perform a radiation test. So they're told by the hospital that they need to head to Keesler Air Force Base. Now keep in mind, Keesler is the same base that had previously told Charles they were not taking reports and they needed to contact the sheriff. So they make their way to the Air Force Base and they were extensively examined by several doctors. Following the examination, Charles and Calvin were interviewed by the military intelligence chief of the base and Charles recalled the whole base command observed the interview and that an Air Force artist made a sketch of one of the creatures. Within days, the area of Pascagoula was the epicenter of a storm of astronomers, newsmen, and curiosity seekers. Even though this young reporter, Mr. Joe Estheris, would later become the author, I guess you would say, of the two films, Basic Instinct and Showgirls. He was a reporter back in the day for Rolling Stone magazine. I love Showgirls. That's a good movie. It's one of the best terrible movies out You know what I'm
0: saying? Like, yeah. It's a good, bad movie. <laughs>
1: Now, Esteris would conclude that the whole thing was a hoax due to the fact that the site of the alleged encounter was within sight of two toll booth operators, neither of whom claimed to have witnessed the incident. Charles would counter this and state that if a craft had traveled light years to abduct them, he's pretty sure they could have done something to keep the two-bo-tool-shit. Two two <laughs> booth operators... From knowing anything. <laughs> and he states, if these ships can counteract gravity and they can navigate the universe, then they're probably capable of concealing themselves from prying eyes. Well, it does make, I mean, that's... The man's wise beyond his that's years. Logical.
0: That's logical. It's a logical conclusion there.
1: Now, confirmation of the craft would come out in 2001 when retired Navy... Chief Petty Officer Mike Cataldo, who had been quiet for 28 years, revealed that he had observed a strange UFO at dusk on the same night as Charles and Calvin's encounter. According to Cataldo, he was traveling with his crewmates Ted Peralta and Mac Hanna on U.S. Route 90 from Pascagoula to Ocean Springs when they saw an object that they would describe as, quote, a large tambourine with small flashing lights. The UFO crossed the freeway, then hovered over the tree line before disappearing from their sight. As the men were still trying to process this sighting, the craft made a second, even closer appearance near Ocean Springs. While Cataldo's report does not necessarily substantiate Charles and Calvin's claims, it does confirm third-party Observers, military personnel, saw something bizarre flying in the skies above Pascagoula the same night. This is where we go back into the uh, the annals of great nicknames.
0: <laughs> it is a good one. I'm not going to lie.
1: Unbeknownst to Charles and Calvin at the time of the incident, former Pascagoula detective Puddin Broadus <laughs> Told Captain Ryder that he saw something streaking through the air that same night. Do according you know, to, do
0: you know how much of a badass you have to be to live with that nickname of Puddin.
1: Well, it's kind of like Sue.
0: That's one. That's exactly one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I named you that to yeah. make you
0: tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you either get tough or
1: die. <laughs> now, according to according to Captain Ryder, Puddin who has since passed away, was an honest man not prone to flight's fancy.
0: Rest in peace, Puddin'.
1: Yes. Godspeed. And Captain Ryder states, quote, Puddin's dead now, but he was a fine man. He wouldn't make something like that up. There you have it. Dr. J. Allen Hynek arrived in Pascagoula representing the U.S. Air Force. The aerial phenomena... Research Organization, or APRO, also sent James A. Harder, a UC Berkeley engineering professor to investigate the incident.
0: If you don't know who Heineck is, he is one of the peop- the biggest people in Project Blue Book.
1: And he was also the scientific liaison on Close Jaws? Encounters oh. <laughs> of the third kind. I thought it was going to be Jaws. And he makes an appearance right there on the top of that little Makes a thing. Mm. But anyway, so Dr. Uh, Heineck and Mr. Harder combined their efforts and interviewed Charles and Calvin together. Harder attempted to find more answers from Calvin by placing him into, quote, regressive hypnosis. But during this process, Calvin became so terrified that they had to halt the procedure due to Mr. Harder feeling that Calvin would injure himself. In another hypnotic session many years later, Charles would claim to have recovered some additional, even more disturbing memories of other, quote, living beings on the spaceship. And this is Charles again, quote, under deep hypnosis, I discovered something that still gives me chills. There were people on that spaceship, living beings in another compartment. They never came in there where we were. And I'm telling you, they looked almost like us. Only thing I can con- I can figure is that they couldn't live in our atmosphere, so they let the robots come out there and carry us inside. End quote. Hmm. Soon after being interviewed by Mr. Harder and Dr. Heinick, both Charles and Calvin took polygraph tests and passed them with flying colors. And in the years since the original abduction, they would take from what I researched, a minimum of 10 more polygraph tests, and they passed every single one of them. Wow. Having that information along with the, quote, secret tape where they are not changing their stories, Mr. Harder and Dr. Hynek felt like the two men were telling the truth. And Dr. Hynek Hynek said, quote, there was definitely something here that was not terrestrial. This was the first time I had seen for myself the profoundly disturbing effect of a UFO encounter on two ordinary human beings. It was impossible to be with Charlie and Calvin or listen to that secret tape and not believe that something terrifying had happened to the both of them. For Dr. Heineck to come out.
0: Yeah, he was a big skeptic. He was, his job was to disprove these things.
1: That was, that was his job. And he never did come out and say during his time with Project Blue Book what it was, but he uncovered something that led him to flip. Mm-hmm. He was no longer a skeptic, and he believed every one of Well, I wouldn't say every, every one every of them. every one of them. But a majority of the unexplainable ones were legit. So in the months following the abduction, Charles and Calvin would leave the Pascagoula area, and they would try to find somewhere new to start over. However, not long after the move, Calvin would have to be hospitalized as what they state is a, quote, emotional breakdown. And I am surprised it took that long. Now, years later, Charles would suggest that the emotional blow that the then 19-year-old Calvin had taken following their abduction was made all the worse for him because he had never before experienced a terrifying life-or-death situation. Charles, on the other hand, was a combat vet of the Korean War where he had been confronted by his own mortality during dangerous situations numerous times. That said, Charles still claimed that his experience with these, quote, robomen had been the most terrifying event in his entire life. And he's on record stating, quote, I've known fear. I fought 20 months in hand-to-hand combat in Korea. The only thing I'm scared of is a snake. I'll run from a snake. But this wasn't normal. This thing really messed Calvin up. He was so young, he just couldn't handle it. And in a March 7, 1974 newspaper article, Charles expressed just how devastating the effects of his encounter had been. And again, he states, quote, "I I wake up every three or four hours, sometimes in a cold sweat. I don't know what is terrifying me so. Maybe I am relieving what happened. I know I've always have the feeling there's something important that I just can't remember no matter how hard I try. Now that would explain his ability to recall some of the descriptive events of this encounter. And before we go any further, I would just like to say that their story's never changed. They've not made any money off of this.
0: Yeah, people people are gonna say and we'll certainly see it in the next case as well, that people are gonna say, Oh, they're just doing it for attention. Does that sound like the type of attention you want? It don't sound He had to move. He had to yeah, relocate. It doesn't sound like the type of attention I would want.
1: Now, later in life, I think in the late eighties, early nineties, I think Charles wound up speaking at some UFO conferences, but not very many. But again he never made any money off of it.
0: Even if he did, even if they paid him to speak, could it could not have possibly been enough money to be worth no making all of this up. No, you know. So yeah, I was critical of all the details, but you know the fact that he got them all out due to hypnosis. I mean, that lives more credibility. But
1: so now, still a lot of details. Yeah, it is. But being a military guy, it almost leads credence to the fact that he is under pressure, able to recall things that say Calvin wasn't at such a young age. Yeah. Now, I know that Charles was older than Calvin by many years, but you can really tell that Charles is extremely upset that it affected Calvin yeah. the way and it did. Yeah,
0: fr- a friend of his. Yeah. It changed his whole life.
1: So now we jump into the tale of the Alabama Metal Man.
0: Just six days later. Just oh. 340 miles away, we're going to get a very similar report, but this time
1: we got some evidence. We got evidence. So on October 17th, 1973, Mr. Jeff Greenhall, a 26 year old chief of police in Falkville, Alabama, was at home with his wife enjoying an evening off. And he received a call just after 10 p.m. The call was from a hysterical. To this day, still anonymous woman who claimed she had just seen a UFO land outside of town in a field that was owned by Bobby Summerford. Even though Mr. Greenhall was off, he jumped up, grabbed his keys, headed to his pickup truck, grabbed his revolver, shotgun, and a Polaroid camera. Now, he would state later in an interview that the department had been issued Polaroid cameras to use to document crime scenes, and he thought nothing of it as he grabbed it. So as he started his truck, he radioed the call into dispatch and headed for the Summerford property. When he arrived at the location that the woman described, he got out of his truck, started looking around, and he would state that he could not find anything out of the ordinary. So he decides to drive around the pasture to make sure it was not a case of mistaken identity, and he figured he would find some kids out there around a campfire. But as he made his way around the pasture, he again saw nothing out of the ordinary. And he was about to leave the area when he sees a gravel, and this is what he called it, a two-track. And if anybody from the south don't know what a two-track is, that's where the wheels cut from a tractor or a pickup truck, and basically it's a one-lane dirt road, but in this case, it was a gravel path.
0: I was born and raised in Georgia. I never heard it's called that, ever. Never heard of it? No. Nope. Two-track?
1: Never heard of it. My granddaddy was from Alabama. He called it that all the time, so it may mm-hmm. just be an Alabama thing. Okay. All right, so... My, my family from Tennessee. Oh, well, there you go. Too far north. <laughs> 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 so he decides to go down this gravel lane, and... Approximately 100 yards down, he sees something shiny at the very edge of his bright lights or high beams. So he slows down, and within what he described, a second or two, he comes to a complete halt. In his headlights, he sees what he describes as a humanoid figure standing on the side of this path approximately 75 feet from him. So Jeff gets out of his truck, and he starts to approach this figure shouting, Hey, are you hurt? Are you lost? And he stated that the figure never acknowledged he was talking in an interview with the YouTuber, and I don't know this man's name, and I've tried to find it, but his YouTube page is Redwater Filmworks. Yeah,
0: that's going that's my recommendation for this week is that interview. Yeah, it's a good one. You
1: gotta hear the pain in that man's voice. Now, Mr. Greenhall says that he gets to within twenty feet of this figure and can now s- clearly see that this thing was wearing what he described as a thick tinfoil suit. Articles written at the time and some written even today have stated that Jeff stated the being was small in stature, the height of a child. However, in the interview that I just mentioned, he states that the being was near his height, which is six foot. He said, quote, it looked like his head and neck were kind of made together. He was real bright, something like rubbing mercury on nickel, but just as smooth as glass. Different angles give different lighting. When I saw him standing in the middle of the road, I immediately stopped the car and asked if he was a foreigner, but no sound came out of his mouth. Jeff would also state that it appeared to have some sort of antenna sticking out of its head, and when it moved, it was real jerky in its movements, very mechanical. So it didn't take long for Mr. Greenhall to realize he was dealing with something that was way beyond his expertise. He did have the presence of mind to pick up his Polaroid camera and take four photographs of the, quote, thing in question. The first one shows nothing but darkness and a real small flash of silver. But the next three photos were what we call in the UFO community money shots. Yeah. And in those photos, and we'll post them, you can clearly see... It's a humanoid figure wearing, wearing what appears to be a wrinkly metallic suit which reflected the flash and reflected the headlights. Now d- during Jeff's interview, he surmised that he thought that perhaps this creature believed that it was being attacked by a human with some sort of light beam weapon when he took the photos. And it was at this moment that the thing instantaneously turned and began sprinting across the field at what jeff states are speeds greater than that of any human possible jeff described the direction that the creature was heading as towards the town of lacone which is about three miles away from Falkville. jeff sprinted back to his truck and pursued the creature now, he would state that he could only accelerate up to about 35 miles per hour because he was going over a pasture w- with extremely rough terrain. But even at that speed, the creature completely outran his truck, all the time seemingly being able to defy the laws of ga- gravity in what, they would st- or in what he would state was like a bouncing, almost like a hopping motion. And its speeds were out of this world. Now, according to Jeff, quote, he ran in a bizarre way, seemed to have springs in, in in the feet for propulsion, could cover about three meters in every way. He was running faster than any human I ever saw. So he's covering almost, what, nine, nine ten 10 feet at a clear stride. Yeah. Per yeah. stride. That's and, pretty hard. Dude. And wh- I listened to a podcast and I apologize. I cannot remember the name of it. No, um, they don't need to listen to it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they and this was pretty good on their part, they would state that if you think about it being from another world, maybe it was like us on the moon. Maybe they're from a world where the gravit their gravity is much more than the Earth's. So when they would when you would take a step you kind of bounced.
0: That's uh that's a good assessment. I like that.
1: Now during the pursuit of the being, Jeff claims he lost control of his truck and slid into a ditch. And it was at this point he watched as the creature disappeared into the dark Alabama night, never to be seen again. Leaving Jeff with his disturbing account and the series of controversial Polaroids. Now, Jeff was instantly met with skepticism, ridicule, and outright meanness, to be honest with you.
0: The fact that he's the chief of police and he's telling this story leads credence to the story because
1: he's the chief of police. And he's 26 years old. It's not like. He knew he was going to open himself up to this. Well, and it's not like he's an idiot. The the town saw fit to hire him at the age of 26, back in 1973, to be the chief of police.
0: Yeah, he's only been the chief since January of 73. And this so, happens in October. And so he's, you're nine, ten months in. And he's going to get so much ridicule that he's gone in November.
1: Yeah. He's going to move. Within months He of revealing what he saw, he was terminated by the town council. His marriage <laughs> fell apart. And just when it couldn't get any worse, his home burned to the ground. And I could not find in my research... And I did not see anything online or any other podcast I listened to. And he didn't mention
0: it in the interview either.
1: No. Whether or not it was arson. But he lost everything, like on the verge of Job. You know, less than the boils of the skin, so, this man has lost everything by coming forward.
0: Yeah, so, you know, if he wanted that attention, he got the wrong kind.
1: And ladies and gentlemen... This is why most people who have experiences with UFOs or encounters of of things they can't explain do not come forward.
0: I know of several people that have told me that they've had experiences, but they, you know, they just know that I would believe them because I believe in this sort of stuff. Weird experiences, seeing ghosts or a UFO or whatever, but they won't come out because they're afraid that everybody else is. Well,
1: and out, I'll, you know, even. You know, we were lucky enough to go to Arkansas, and uh me and Raylan were lucky enough to uh duck hunt with a listener. And, you know, he he stated that the reason he found our podcast was because he was interested in the giant of Kandahar. And he said that he worked with a man that was in the military that was over there at the time. And so he said it took him some time to get up the nerve, but one night he asked him. He said, hey, man, you said you was in the service over in Afghanistan? And he said, the guy kind of looked at him kind of sideways and goes, yeah. He said, well, I heard this story. And he said, the guy cut him off and said, I was at the base that this party came from. And he said, I can tell you this. He said, whatever they said, it's true, man. He said, but that's all you're going to get out of me. And I ain't going to ever say that I told you that. (laughs) Even though your buddy says that he was over there and he denies any. any He
0: wasn't there. He wasn't there at that time, but. And he wouldn't. He he's the type of person. He wouldn't tell me. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me if it's true. I've had. I've tried to get this man to watch, to watch, justified about fifty thousand times, and he won't do it out of spite. He, I'm like, man, you would love the show. He goes, yeah, I probably will, but I ain't gonna do it. We go to the, when we go to Vegas to compete at worlds. There's the be- the best tacos in the entire world that I've ever had. I'm sure there's better, but strictly me, I've ever had, are at these place called Tacos El Gordo, and he won't order them with cheese. Out of spot because I'm like, man, they're so good, you should try them. He's like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, dude, just try them. He's like, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> I like,
1: I'd say he's a little hard-headed.
0: <laughs> he's, hey, what happens, man?
1: Huh? He's a little jaded. <laughs> All right, back to the story. So a lot of ufologists believe that the Alabama man was a robotic scout for a extracurric- extracurricular
0: extracurricular activity,
1: extraterrestrial landing craft. But skeptics state that the whole thing was a hoax and an unknown co-conspirator dressed in an asbestos fire suit, which back in the time, if you see a picture of an asbestos fire suit, it does look very similar but it does not have an antenna coming out of its head. And it. last time I checked, people wearing them could not cover 9 to 10 feet at a clip. No. That's
0: quite difficult.
1: Walt Andrus was a director for MUFON, the mutual UFO network, and he concluded that it was a hoax solely based on the fact that the Pascagoulet, incident happened mere days earlier and that somehow Jeff got wind of this and hoaxed the whole thing.
0: Okay. All right. If
1: Jeff was an average citizen, I might buy into that. But this man was the sh- chief of police for the town. Yeah. And I guarantee you, he probably may have seen one article on it.
0: Even so. I, even so. What about the woman that called? Would she was she, Did that phone call happen? Is he lying about that, too? Well, in his I mean,
1: interview, he states that... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because you listened to it just a night or two ago, and I have listened to it a couple of days ago. Didn't he state in the interview that she had said or he had seen some odd lights around the power lines out there on that near that pasture?
0: Yes, he did. He saw weird lights. He did say that. Okay.
1: He also states in the interview that... He had the photographs and he hadn't looked at them in quite some time.
0: No, he said he hadn't seen them in 40 years.
1: Right, but what I'm saying is he had seen, he had taken photographs, he had moved, whatever, and he went to go look like he was looking for something and thought, hey, that's where I put those photographs. And he realized that his house had been broken yep. into, He'd and been. the only thing that was taken.
0: No, three things were
1: taken. That's what I'm saying. The only things. Yeah, with the S. Plural. That were taken were the four photographs, his service revolver at the time he was chief of police, and the shotgun that he carried at the time he was chief of police. Those th- three things were the only thing that someone broke into his house for.
0: That's weird. And, and the fact that they were able to break in without him knowing, like, they didn't leave any trace. And so when you take something that's been put away for a long time, if you take it, the person's not going to notice. So who knows when or where that uh, those photos. I
1: oh. found it odd that they would take the revolver and the shotgun along with the photos unless they believed there was some trace evidence that's of something right. being I mean, on radio, them.
0: Maybe some radioactive
1: Something radioactive?
0: Something left over? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe they were just um, super into the
1: story and they wanted souvenirs. You know, Maybe so, but where the hell are you going to sell that shit at?
0: Well, maybe they didn't want to sell it. Maybe they just wanted it.
1: Maybe he was a real rich Southern Democrat. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, whether or not you believe Mr. Jeff Greenhall is going to be up to you. But before you place judgment on this man, keep in mind that, like we've stated before, he was a very sharp, intelligent man who was elected as chief of police by the Falkville Town Council at the young age of 26 he has garnered no financial gain or positive notoriety due to his experience and while he has managed to rebuild some semblance of a normal life he stated in the interview that he regrets his encounter to this day
0: yeah just go just go listen to that youtube it's on youtube uh, just go listen to that interview. You can just hear the pain in the man's voice. He's getting
1: old. He's in his mid to late seventies. Yeah. and the young man that uh, interviews him is eighteen and does a tremendous job. And really, I really wished really he good job. For yeah, an year old. I really wished I knew his real name so we could give him credit. But we are giving him well, a shout out on the YouTube thing. Um, but
0: but yeah, the this man happened during COVID, so I mean, like the you know, so it's a recent interview.
1: Yes. And, uh, Mr. Greenhall had to move from what it sounds like to the other side of the state to get away from the publicity. And he, he did remarry and he gives credit to his new wife sticking by him. And he has raised two kids, adopted three kids that he raised and has a swarm of grandbabies that he enjoys. But again, he's made nothing off of this. And he had everything taken from him by coming forward. And you can tell, like Coach said, the pain in his voice when he recounts some of this stuff. I, for one, believe him wholeheartedly that he saw something that he cannot explain.
0: Well, I can tell you, by the sound of his voice, I can tell you this much. His, his story is 100% true. Or he is one hundred percent regretful that he hoaxed it. You know what I'm trying to say? Like you can just tell that if he hoaxed it, which I don't think he did, if he hoaxed it, you can tell it that the, the attention he was looking for was not what he
1: got. No. He got not at all. The opposite. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of the Pascagoula Alien Abductors and the Alabama Metal Man. Final thoughts? <sighs> I think we've kind of surmised. We got the same same final yeah, thoughts, I believe. I, when I look at the pictures that you're going to see, um
0: I mean, it does just look like a dude, in a...
1: as best as fire suit, man. Yeah, yeah, or uh just wrapped in aluminum foil. It does, but to the s- fact he couldn't keep up, it, up with it in a pickup truck
0: Well, you're going to have you got to take him on his word for that. Well, you I, know, because and again, I do take him on his word, but he it could be a hoax it could be he could have he could have been hoaxed but yeah the, oh yeah okay Let, yeah let's that's that's what i was originally going to say he could have been hoaxed but
1: he was not involved right right he was genuine He could i mean but but if it was a hoax someone i think by now would have come out and said yeah man we got that sheriff yeah. or we got that chief of police yeah you know because the think about the surgeon's photo for lochness yeah. that guy finally came forward and he was in his 60s or 70s
0: well i mean heck there's been what like four or five people come out to claim that they were part of the Patterson Gimlin hoax and they i mean they've all been pro- proven wrong uh yeah i'm telling you that if there, that's if, 100% if, real. if there's a real video of bigfoot out there that's the one but so yeah to say that no one came out to say no one came out to say that this was a ho- hoax
1: it's kind of strange. I think it leads it, a lot of credence to the story. Yeah. And going back to Pascagoula, those two men have never gained anything financially. They've had to, like Jeff, had to move to get away from it. And poor Calvin had a damn nervous breakdown.
0: Yeah. Like, that's just not the type of attention you want. I'm telling you.
1: No. <laughs> now, uh, before we go any further... Um, further ado, I would like to say that I met with Kylie of Kylie's Corner. Our throwback original Why listeners will know she is planning on getting married in October. Uh, Meth Mouth Judy has turned her life around and she is now the pot sticker maker queen. Uh, Bagwell is no longer selling donuts; she owns her own wine bar in South Carolina. So if you're ever in South Carolina, look up Bagwell's Wine Bar. But no, seriously, uh, one thing I did want to talk on, and uh, Meth Mouth Judy was the one to bring it up, she felt like, Coach, that me and you were at odds at the uh, the young man's case where he was put in the cheerleading mats. She felt like that you were, you were uh cross with me because <laughs> I kept saying wrestling mats, and I tried to explain to her that that was part of the shtick. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that I kept saying wrestling mats to get a rise out of, <laughs> of you. And she was like, no, no, I could sense that he was really pissed. And I was like, well, he was pissed because people kept saying wrestling mats. He wasn't mad at me. I wasn't mad at you, but (laughs) no, no, well, a little behind
0: the scenes. I mean, I did go on like a five-minute rant right before we recorded (laughs) about it. And, and said, and if, and you say, him, "If you say, if you say, if you say wrestling mats, I'm on." And then, of course,
1: I said, "Wrestling mats."
0: Being the person you are, I, sp-
1: I poked the bear. Yeah, you got to. Like, how could you not? And and I let our listeners hear his tirade. <laughs> I think I did y'all a favor.
0: <laughs> well, they weren't wrestling mats, damn it. <laughs> they they weren't then. They aren't now, and, and never,
1: never will, will be. be. <laughs> All right, so I believe him. I believe Charles, I believe Calvin, I believe Jeff. They saw something, they had an experience to this day that they regret coming forward. And I'm pretty sure that Mr. Greenhall will never hear this episode, but on the off chance that he does, sir, my heart goes out to you. I'm glad that you have found it in your heart to move past the... Horrible dealings, luck that you had come your way. And hopefully, like you stated in the interview, you are a better person for it. So, recommendations, since you've already just killed it, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> I'm going to recommend you look up what a damn wrestling man is. <laughs> no, I want the Redwater Filmworks, the Jeffrey Greenhall interview. That's my recommendation. You really, truly need to do some extracurricular activity on this one and at least listen to that
1: that is heartbreaking my recommendation and it's an old show but i just found it if you have amazon prime and you like crime dramas bosch it is actually well written and it doesn't go off on too many tangents that they could have gone off and just hijacked the whole story where you're like "Fuck this subplot i don't care they touch on some of the things, and they stick with the main story. I'm two seasons in, and it's it's real good. I really do enjoy it. So if you have never watched TV Bosch, show?
0: it's on Amazon. Well, if we're recommending TV shows, I'm going to recommend The Food That Built America on the History Channel. That is an amazing show. any of those Built America, like The Men Who Built America, The Men Who Built America, Wild Frontier, and then The Food That Built America, they're all three just phenomenal. So... So there you have it. You got anything else here? Slap nut. Who'd have guessed Pizza Hut versus Domino's would have been such an interesting <laughs> hour. You know what I mean? Dude, The one of the brothers from Domino's, they founded it together. One of them got frustrated because he was the little brother and he was getting ordered around by his big brother. So he's like, screw this. I'm out. He said, mm. I'll sell you my, my half of this mm. restaurant mm. for a VW Beetle.
1: That didn't work out too well, did it? And
0: when Domino's sold to... uh, Kentucky Fried's?
1: No, they didn't. Whoever they
0: sold out to, his half would have been worth $8.5 billion. And he got... A beetle. A VW beetle.
1: Keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen.
0: My word.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen. Tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. (laughs) (laughs) Deuces.